0: This is IVP.
1: This is The Disruptors, a podcast collaboration from Innovar City Press and CT Creative Studio. Metal mm-hmm. tracks never been a fabricator, but like MOK I've been an agitator. Posted by me, Isama Kohli. Sheila Wise Rowe is someone who spent the last 25 years counseling trauma and abuse survivors. And she's taken that 25 years of experience and brought out the best of that in a book called Healing Racial Trauma. One of the things we said about The Disruptors is that it's calling the church to be the church. And one of the things that it takes to be the church is the church needs to be able to tell the truth. And when you talk about someone who's dealing with racial trauma That trauma arises from the historic mistreatment of people of color So she's calling people to do two things Acknowledge the truth of what's happened in this country And do what Paul says Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ She's called. She's saying that there's a burden that people of color are bearing As survivors of racial trauma And therefore we can do something about it they have this thing called trauma laughter. You deal with pain through comedy.
0: Well, I am a Boston native, uh, Boston, Massachusetts. I was born. So, are
1: you a Red Sox fan? Do you hate the Yankees? Are you a stereotype?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> as someone who himself grew up in the South and dealt with the racism and the difficulties there, I mostly dealt with it by either A, just saying, I'm not gonna live there anymore, or B, making jokes about it, but she forces people to do the hard work of bringing about racial healing.
0: You know what? The, the whole Red Sox thing is a really interesting story, you know, the, about the curse. Oh, yes, yes.
1: Basically, Massachusetts suffered for hundreds of years until I moved to Boston. <laughs> and during my time there was when both the Red Sox and the Patriots began to win Super Bowl.
0: Uh, well, one of the interesting things that happened just before the, the Red Sox, the World Series, was that there was a group that came through from the UK and they were going to all the slave ports in the US and um, and they were doing like this kind of representational repentance and okay. in which they went to the town halls and they got town officials, some town officials did sign off on it Um and so one of them was on the North Shore, where I live, and I, I went and met with them, which was interesting because there were some um, neo-Nazis who were there as well. Um, and wow. a lot of people have said that that curse was, um, was linked to this really powerful time of prayer.
1: In this country, we choose the things that we remember and the things that we forget. And the people who choose what is remembered and what is forgotten are often the people who are in power. And sometimes it behooves us as a country to say, yes, every year we remember the 4th of July and our independence, that we want to glorify as a country. And the things that are harmful, we kind of say those things are in the past. And the fact that they're in the past are a symbol of the progress of this country. And though this country has made progress, the wounds from that still remain. She's calling the church to A, listen to the the story of people who've been abused and B, do the work of healing. But not only that, she works within an African-American context. And so she's not simply saying to white churches, or you know, you need to heal black racial wounds. She's saying that to people within an African-American context, these things have harmed you in ways that you may not even understand, and that you need to be able to do the work to be able to effectively live and not pass on that trauma to our children and our grandchildren. I know that Massachusetts has a complicated racial history. Is that oh, yeah. how you got interested yeah. in racial trauma?
0: Yeah. So I, um, I went through busing in Boston, and um, so this is during the '70s. I, I actually was a part of a program that uh, was a voluntary program that predated the whole um, mandated busing, and, um, and so a lot of that I, I do share in in the book about just that journey of being in a, a black community, and then because the education was so poor um, that the parents were trying to figure out well how do we uh, you know get the, the city, the school department to actually educate our children properly, give them the resources, everything from books to seats uh, and they were really stonewalled. And so the parents found a really obscure law that said that if there were seats, Available anywhere around the city uh, that a student could transfer into that particular school. So, my parents uh, basically were part of this program called Operation Exodus, and um, we were bused to schools in uh, white communities.
1: Well, I remember seeing the stories of the Boston bu- buses in mm-hmm. the Eyes on the Prize yeah. television show when I was a kid. Yeah. And I, I can't believe that I'm actually talking to someone who actually experienced those yeah, things. Yeah. Did your parents talk to you about this? Did they explain to you what was happening? I mean, did you did you realize that you were participating in history? No. When you did this? Or do you just thinking I'm going to school and I'm riding a bus?
0: Yes. Yes. I, I really thought I'm going to school and I'm riding a bus. Um, you know, some of what I experienced and my siblings and um a lot of a lot of the the black kids experience was pretty bad uh, in whether it was the, during the operation Exodus phase or the later when, um, so, w-
1: when you say, when you say pretty bad, I mean, we've, we, some of us have seen the videos and we've heard about it. Can you speak personally about some of the things that you encountered and the ways in which you were trying? I mean, I always hate to have people perform their pain in public. And so we don't want you to feel like you're uncomfortable. Mm. But just to give the listeners an idea of what that was like, could you share as much as you feel comfortable?
0: You know, if you think about coming from a community where everybody looks like you. Yeah.
1: Yes, I talk about it, all black everything. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, so all black, black church, everything. Yes.
1: Black high school, black middle school, black elementary school, black doctors, black pastors, mm-hmm. the entire economic system. And I grew up in the 90s. Yeah. So we even had like the McDonald's around the corner. The, like everybody who cooked their food was black. Yeah. And so my, so it was like, I remember, and we we were so stereotypical growing up on our football team. We had like the white kicker. So, yeah, like the all black team with the one white kicker. Right. And so, I know what you mean when you talk about going from an all black community yeah. to something different.
0: Yeah. So, it was unique because my parents, um, when uh, during the whole era of, of Malcolm and uh, Martin Luther King, they were a part of the nation of Islam. So um, they were definitely disciples of Malcolm X and attended meetings and sold the paper and the bean pies and the whole nine. Um, and then when Malcolm was assassinated, they left and they they weren't really practicing anything for a period. So that's kind of the backdrop in terms of the family that I came out of. And so for for my family, education was really important. They had come from the South, Um transplants to boston i'm very
1: happy that you brought up the nation of islam yeah because when i think about christianity and the options that are available especially as it relates to issues of of race justice and trauma yeah is that sometimes when i'm talking to my white colleagues they think of the options ranging from kind of white mainline progressivism to evangelicalism so they hear the entire conversation along that spectrum. Yeah. And when I was growing up, the options on the table weren't I'm either gonna be in a white mainline church yeah. or a white evangelical church. Yeah. It was the black church or black nationalism. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly yeah. like in my neighborhood, you talked yeah. about the bean pies and the nation of mm-hmm. Islam and the people sitting at the street corner. Yeah. Those were that was the option. And yeah. I remember watching yeah. I remember watching the movie The Autobiography of, of Malcolm X mm-hmm. and considering the nation of Islam as a viable possibility as a way of yeah. trying to make sure Oh try, trying to deal with what it meant to be black in the yeah. south and yeah. i remember I remember when like um when that movie came out and all of us started kind of our back to Africa, our medallions mm-hmm. and all of that other movement mm-hmm. and I remember thinking to myself in middle school, but they don't have Jesus <laughs> <laughs> yeah. sometimes that spectrum of responses to trauma, either something that is rooted in the church or dealing with that trauma as a move towards nationalism right is kind of the the binary so how did you choose the church as the the place within which you would address this issue
0: i actually went through college um got my bachelor's degree got a master's degree in counseling psychology and and still i think beca- because of my parents and i think that you know they're the kind of activist mindset i really had this sense of okay i want to I want to have some impact in the community. And so I, I initially worked as a social worker. I was not a Christian. um, Although, you know, we attended services, but on a Sunday, but it was more of a social thing. It was, you know, they had a kid's program. So we went.
1: Yeah. Uh, BBS gets them every time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, so, right. So we, we went and, um, went through college, not a Christian. Afterwards, um, Working as a social worker and getting burnt out, um, partly because it was really all about me in my own strength, thinking I'm going to do something. I'm going to change the world. And uh, So
1: if if, if I'm I'm hearing you correctly, then your experiences as a child dealing with the trauma of busing mm -hmm. and dealing with the kind of opposition that arose from that, led to this desire to solve the problem yes you're an activist yes you so what i'm saying is your, your experience i think there's a lot of people who experience this stuff and say i want to change it yes and the first part of your career involves you charging headlong oh, yeah. uh, you know trying to take down the monster of trauma mm-hmm. right and that seemed to have not gone well and yeah. now you're searching for something else
0: yeah and you know what the thing is that because i i actually had not dealt with my trauma from being in an all white school being humiliated being my intellect questioned um seeing teachers just being verbally abusive um to me to my siblings i i really didn't deal with it and so You know, it's often the case with trauma is that one of the things that we do is we get bigger. We can get bigger, you know, stronger. We can go out there and we're going to take charge and we're going to do it. And the problem is that the trauma hasn't been dealt with. And so it's not sustainable um, to get out there and, you know, to keep fighting.
1: When I was in, it's interesting because once again, you are dealing with what happens when you leave that community and go into a white community yes. and your gifts and talents aren't always affirmed. Yeah, I I, t- I mean, we're, we're from a slightly different generations, but I stayed within an all-black school. Mm. But the cultural nihilism and the cultural assumptions about black intellect that exist outside mm. of our community actually sometimes come into our community. Yeah. And what you see sometimes is, from the exhaustion of some of our teachers, kind of an eternalization of... Um, black inadequacies and then the teachers will sometimes not all teachers they will make decisions about students oh yeah and say okay you aren't one of the few black kids who are going to make it yeah i remember um, one teacher told me i was never going to graduate and that i wasn't smart enough to get an academic scholarship and i wasn't a good enough athlete to get a football scholarship so i was going to be doomed to live in this neighborhood forever Mm. and that and that and that statement stuck with me yeah um and that was from an african-american teacher in an all african-american context and that was a jerk i mean you're young because when you're young you don't know and so like sometimes the ignorance that you display in the classroom is a way of guarding against the nihilism if i don't try then i can't fail and then my my life in the community isn't a result of my lack of intellectual ability it's actually because i never actually gave it a chance right and so i think that everyone in some, or a lot of people, African-Americans coming through the educational system, regardless of context, find themselves traumatized. So you're traumatized. You're not yeah. dealing with it. Right. You're in college. Yeah. And you're out of college at this point. So
0: yeah, I'm out of college. I'm working as a social worker. I then um, got into a relationship with someone who was an addict. And um, that kind of led me to Jesus, <laughs> to be blunt.
1: <laughs> well, my, my we have, we have, I have addicts, um, all around my life, mm. and Jesus is oftentimes the only solution. Yes, so yeah. I, I know exactly what that looks yeah. like. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, so I, you know, committed my life to Christ, and so this was in '84, and um, it was an interesting time because it was also the time when there was this um, sudden, mysterious disease that was um, afflicting people. It was HIV.
1: I remember I was in elementary school so you're you're becoming a christian i'm hitting I'm hitting kindergarten, yeah, okay, <laughs> but I remember Ronald Reagan' standing on television, giving a press conference talking about AIDS, yeah, and like what it meant, and I remember right. him saying something like you had a two year window where you might die in two years. Yeah. I remember thinking like in elementary school, I was positive mm. that I had AIDS, I had an aunt. Who wow. died of AIDS mm. sometime in the the nineties? Yeah, and I remember watching her get sick and die, and I just thought, "This is this is I'm going to get this, and I'm going to die." That was I was cons- I was convinced that I was going to get AIDS in the eighties yeah. and the nineties.
0: Well, you know what? Because they weren't really clear. Well, they didn't know. They didn't know. Well, yes. how is it transmitted? Um, even though there was lots of science that said it wasn't in the air, wasn't from sipping out of the same cup as somebody that that wasn't yeah. the way it was transmitted there was a lot of propaganda that came out of the church um, that basically said that that wasn't true, that it could be because of a mosquito bite. It could be from drinking somebody's cup. And so I, you know, was, I had friends who were, they're, they're coming down with um, HIV and AIDS. And so um it really had this sense of, okay, I am now a Christian. I'm, you know, a lot more conservative um, and, yeah, this sense of, you know, feeling Jesus is calling me to to do something. And so um, I started a, a Christian AIDS ministry at the church that I was at. And mm-hmm. um, the church was in, in Cambridge, in Harvard Square, a small church, but lots of students. And um, and so uh, we started that and started really just a visitation program, visiting people in the hospital uh, and one of a friend of mine who – uh, was HIV positive and who was homeless. Uh, I had a two bedroom apartment, so he ended up staying with me, and um, yeah, and just was with him until he passed away. Um, with and it was within a year, and um, that was, uh, you know, during that time, it was really important in terms of the church somehow modeling something other than what was being, um, you know, kind of spoken, um, in the media and that, um, so myself and the team of folk, we would have like AIDS healing services. We worked with one of the local hospitals that was seeing increased numbers of patients and, um, there was no visitation program. People generally were dumped there. Their families rejected them. I
1: remember, I remember when I was a kid and towards the end of my aunt's life, we went in to visit her and she was very ill and her immune system was completely compromised. And they gave us a mask and they told us, and I remember I, at least it, it was communicated to me. I don't want to say it was the doctor. I was a kid, but I remember getting this message very clearly. She has no her immune system is completely compromised. Mm-hmm. Do not cough in the room. Yeah. And I remember being afraid that if I sneezed, I was going to kill my aunt. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's a, that that was, a lot. For, um, yeah. Wow. I remember that. I remember that very vividly. Yeah thinking like, do not sneeze, do not cough. And I remember having like the scrubs and everything on to go into the room and she had the lesions. But so how did we get, how did you get from there to dealing with racial trauma in the church?
0: Well, a lot of what I've been doing over the years has been, I've been working with um, people who've been dealing with relational brokenness, dealing with issues of racism, um, a lot of work with sexual abuse survivors, and increasingly, what I saw was that, regardless of what the issue may have been—the presenting issue—someone's coming to me for counseling. If they were a person of color, race was always an issue.
1: Race So, was always. An you, issue. Would you say that all of us are traumatized in some sense, or many of us are traumatized in some sense?
0: I, you mean us as in people of color? Sorry,
1: yes, people of color. I'm black. We black. Yeah. So. <laughs> When I use when I use the, the we, it's the black we for, yes, for the yes. sake of this podcast. Yes, yes. yes.
0: yes. So um, I think to varying degrees, and I and I believe that there are ways in which we respond to that. And so for some of us, we are very aware that you know this a particular incident or an experience has been traumatizing, or we have been traumatized over time. I think there are others who um, minimize it and deny it. Um, mm. There are others who shame people yes. for wanting to even look at it and address it. And these, these are people who are Black.
1: Yes. These are other yeah. people of color. I, I think that... I, one of the things I was just—I've been thinking a lot about this—the public discourse around racial trauma. I want to say here's something that happened. This is bad. I want to call attention to it. Yeah. But what? what but what can quickly happen is then people support it, they retweet it, and then you you build your platform and your social presence by talking about trauma. And I began to feel like I was traumatizing myself by talking about these things right. all of the time publicly. Yeah. And then there's there's a, there's a an opposite like. Platform for black people, especially on the internet, of saying racial trauma isn't a problem. Racial trauma doesn't exist. Yep, yep. It's a sin problem, not a skin yep, problem. It's yep. a colorblind society. And so, and like, then there's an entire audience of people who say, yes, here's a black person who articulates my cultural and political um beliefs yeah. so i'm gonna i'm gonna support them that doesn't mean that the black person who disagrees with me is like doing it strictly for those purposes mm-hmm. what i'm saying is there's an audience for both and sometimes those yeah. audiences are white there's some um white um uh people in 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 the public square who want black people to talk about their trauma yeah and so i feel like yeah in both cases, the, the discourse around racial trauma has been weaponized. Yes. How do you think that the church does or should treat the issue of racial trauma differently than the rest of the world?
0: You know what? Fundamentally, I, I really believe that our, our model is Jesus. How did Jesus interact with the marginalized, interact with you know those who were considered less than? You know, was there a, a way in which he models compassion? He he models care. It it feels like, you know, for those who um, feel like you know people just need to get over it. Um, you know eh, that there is a real lack of appreciation for just you know that everybody is on a journey. Um, God is working with folk. Can we be patient with one another? Um, yes. And and I feel like as a as a church big C where where's Jesus in this where's the heart of God um, when we look at someone and someone who says that they've been racially traumatized and yet we we feel that you know it's beholden for us to say that's not true and that couldn't possibly be um, versus you know how can I come alongside how can I support how can I help
1: so where are the places in which you feel like Jesus gives us a good example of what it means to deal with uh marginalized is there a particular passage or a story from the gospels that is important for you for thinking about how you deal with racial trauma?
0: Yeah. You know what, I there's a there's a verse in Jeremiah, I'm taking out of context, but it speaks to this. But I mean Jeremiah. I
1: mean this is a judgment free zone exegetically. so <laughs> We're gonna so, we're gonna we're gonna I mean we're we're gonna adopt a canonical reading of yes, the scripture and, and yes, say yes. these things are written for our instruction.
0: Yes, yes, yes. So Jeremiah six fourteen where it says they've treated the wounds of my people carelessly, saying peace, peace when there is no peace. Yes. And and it really that verse really struck me because No, no, no. You're doing some work there. You're
1: doing some yeah. work there. Cause let me explain, let me explain. I'm gonna yeah. help you. We're gonna execute our way to <laughs> glory right here. In context, in Jeremiah, the whole point is the people who are in the leadership of Israel. There are fundamental yes. problems going on in the country, in the country yeah. that is in that is endangering their relationship with God. And mm-hmm. Jeremiah is saying, "Y'all are not getting to the heart of the issue." Mm-hmm. Now, you can then make the translation and say, "No, the United States is not in a covenant with God, and therefore it's not a one-to-one passage." But the theological idea that the church itself is dealing lightly and not Mm -hmm. taking seriously the racial trauma that people of color in this country are experiencing. And because they're not dealing with that issues, people are suffering is an an apt application of Jeremiah. So don't you let somebody (laughs) shame you for using Jeremiah. Because one of the things that you see in the prophetic literature is this, this idea that when you read Isaiah, for example, you don't see simply God yelling at Israel for breaking the covenant promises. like, yeah. But you also see God saying you are being unholy in the sense of abandoning yeah. the one true God yeah. and you're oppressing the marginalized. Yeah. And there's kind of the, the, the different streams within the Christian tradition. One tradition tends to emphasize the God's concern for the marginalized potentially to the exclusion of god's call for holiness yeah And the people who call for god's holiness and mm-hmm. faithfulness to the, to the covenant don't necessarily like to read those passages yep. or deal with those passages in a serious way yeah. instead they just kind of wish away any discussion of justice well, as kind of indicative of critical race theory yeah because sometimes when i'm in my snarky moments i want to ask if the prophets read critical race theory if, well, if isaiah and jeremiah and and it, I was, sorry, I'm going to be, this is, this is my interview with you, but I got to finish my sermon. <laughs>
0: it's okay.
1: I was, I was just reading, I was just reading James where he says, true religion is this, right? Mm. <laughs> to care for the widows yep. the widows, and the orphans and exactly. to keep yourself unstained by the world. Exactly. That's like, it's James of critical race theory because he says that personal holiness and justice are both part of what it means to follow God. Right. But now I'm done with my homily. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done preaching. This is the sheila this is the Sheila interview, yeah, so Sheila, yeah, how would you say that what you're doing with racial trauma, how does this disrupt or change the way the church engages in this ministry so say say, for example, the church caught the vision, mm-hmm. yes, there are people of color who are traumatized yeah. by what is happening in this country in the past and in the present, and we want to be involved in it, like how would adopting or dealing with racial trauma actually changed the way the church is functioning.
0: One of the issues for for black folk, whether you are black, indigenous, other people of color is that if the church actually recognized like people's stories um, and and that their stories, their journey of healing, their what they have to offer um, is something that the church really needs. I really believe that, you know, it returns us to that, you know, the Acts, um, the early church, where people looked at the church and said, wow, they knew that we were Christians by our love. And that is so not the case. Hey, everybody, Richard here producer of the Disruptors. Intervarsity Press wanted me to let you know that you can go to IVpress.com slash disruptors with an E to learn more about IVP books and get thirty percent off all titles with free shipping. And now let's go back to the conversation.
1: How would a church, how would you suggest that a church goes about listening? Like, what would that look like?
0: There is a church in Boston, um, Roxbury Prez, and they have a um, Corey Johnson Center and, and they're dealing with trauma and they're dealing with racial trauma, but also on, on a larger scale trauma. But they have created a, a program, an open door for the community, for people to, to share, to get prayer. Um, they have even small group time. They do like you know yoga exercises. There's um, you know just kind of an open mic even for people to share, and it's and in that way they really are dis, you know destigmatizing um, you know our emotional struggles, and in which I feel like for a lot of uh, a lot of churches of color we don't want to deal with our our mental illness or our emotional struggles. And so, do you, if, you think there? You think there's still a stigma about mental health in in
1: in black churches? Oh,
0: absolutely! All, all I would say across the board um, with people of color, whether it's it's black or any any other um, uh, churches of color, they're, is, they're that,
1: is that is that exhausting to you? Because you, you you spend all of your time dealing with people with mental health problems. Yes is it is it ever what exhausts you about this work? Is it getting black churches to listen? Is it getting white churches to listen? Is it get or, or, or churches of color? Like, what is it that like wears you out in in the racial trauma world?
0: Yeah, um, I I think it's one of getting um, getting churches to really get on board, and and so I even trace this back to the whole HIV experience. It was just the, you know the church wasn't present. And so the call for the church to actually step up and be the church, that can be exhausting. And, and when you think about, you know, my husband and I, we did a, a conference, a reconciliation conference, in which we, we dealt with trauma on, um, on a certain level and, and reconciliation um, generally. And this was, this had at this point, it was 26 years ago, and we are still having the same conversation. Um, and that, that part is frustrating when it feels like there are, there has been movement, so I won't deny it, that there has, yes. but but 20 something years later, it, like we're still having this conversation.
1: So we're basically passing on our trauma to oh, the yeah. generation.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I saw this in South Africa. We lived there for 10 years from 2005 until 2016. Um, I saw how unhealed trauma, racial trauma, can impact a community and a society, and I see it here. I see it here, and that we're you know, the stuff that our children are hearing and listening to and experiencing is causing racial trauma for them. And yeah. we're going to see the consequence later.
1: So, what we talk about what discourages you, what gives you hope,
0: yeah. So, you know, there are churches, um, that are. Are dealing with this and that church in Roxbury is one is the A.M.E. Church Bethel A.M.E. Um, in Boston as well, and I I think that one of the one of the key things is that these are communities where um, folk can feel safe, can feel like they can process what is happening to them, to them, even the children. Um, you know, for our our kids, you know, we attended Bethel and it was an important model for them to see black, black folk who, you know, as far as, you know, work or socioeconomic levels kind of, you know, was a broad spectrum. Um, But it was important for them to see that, to see the strength that's, that's in the community that in many ways, you know, communities of color, you know, we're, we're miracles.
1: Yes. I want to, I have like two questions, maybe they relate to to one, one to the other. Do you feel like it is more important for majority churches of color to deal with the issues of racial trauma within those communities or for majority white churches or even multi-ethnic churches to begin to deal with racial trauma where there may be ethnic minorities who are in the congregation, but the issue of racial trauma isn't being
0: addressed? So it it is both, but it primarily is people of color centered around the the people of color need healing from racial trauma. And so the focus really is on us and what we need to keep going. Um, I said, you know, that we're miracles. We are miracles. And, you know, the fact that we continue, given what we have to face is is pretty incredible. But there is a way in which we're limping along. And there's a need for us to heal. So
1: how how does this intersect with issues of justice because Absolutely. it seems like the very advocacy for justice publicly is going to lead to racial trauma because the resistance yeah. to your call for justice is what brings the trauma so how do you how do you deal with activists who are currently who are constantly dealing with issues of i am fighting for the good of my people yeah. but this good is causing me real emotional yeah. damage how do you how do you minister to activists
0: so you know what I- I feel like what ends up happening is that we tend to kind of operate in these silos, like, okay, so I'm a justice person. So it's all about, let's, you know, let's tear it, burn it down or whatever. Yes. Um. And, and yet um. there's a person. <laughs> and yes. so that person is experiencing trauma. That person is impacted by, you know, trying to, you know, have get systemic change? It' not happening. They're constantly, whether personally experiencing racism, they're vicariously experiencing it. It is wearing them down. And so, you know, in terms of my my book, the the crux of it, the core of it, is really healing the racial trauma that whether it's an activist or the an average person.
1: I'll ask you, as someone who deals with this stuff all of the time what is the spiritual cost that you actually experience and how do you take care of yourself to make sure that this yeah. doesn't overcome you? Cause it's such a, an emotionally taxing right. reality. Right. It, it absolutely. So you're going to give us talking points on how you do self care. Yeah. So that the rest of us yeah. don't end up, you know, drooling in a corner.
0: Yeah. You have to be really um, vigilant and about where, where are you at emotionally? Where are you at in terms of your body? You know, are there places where there's stress? Are there pain points because of something that you've experienced? And to make a commitment to to yourself, to caring for yourself, to to getting the help that you need, I uh, you know whether it is a group of friends that you can process stuff with or it's seeing a therapist. Um, but this sense of you know we you know it was a learned behavior. We just like you know in order for us to keep it moving. We just had to shovel it down and and not deal with it, and so it's it's being very much kind of, you know embodied you know present in your life in your body. Like what is going on? Where do I need help? Where where am I experiencing a lack of joy? I'm intentional about unplugging. I'm intentional about you know looking. At how how is my relationship with God? Am I spending time in prayer? Am I worshiping? you know, am I, you know, I've gotten to the point where I don't want to go to church. What's, what is that about? You know, making an effort to, to do that making an effort to connect with friends. Um, I have a circle of women friends who I've known for like almost 30 years. And these are women that I can call they'll you know, I need prayer. Um, I need to just go out and, you know, grab a coffee or, Um, I try to get out in nature.
1: You said that sometimes you don't feel like going to church. Yeah. One of the things that I've seen happen is especially kind of um, African-American Christians or Christians of color in evangelical settings. Mm -hmm. And they they begin to develop stronger racial conscience. Yes. And they begin to understand that they've kind of suppressed this part of themselves for the sake of fitting into a community. And then they begin to want their churches to address these issues. Yes. And that this frustration, and so this frustration they bring into the church. And then because the church doesn't deal with these things, mm-hmm. church itself becomes a source of racial trauma. Yeah, And they find themselves, in that sense, alienated from the churches that they were attending. Yes. But because they've been in majority white spaces for a long time, it's not easy for them to shift back into the culture of majority black churches. Yeah. And so they find themselves in this kind of spiritual wilderness. Yeah. Arising actually out of racial trauma. Yeah. And so I'm wondering is, do you see that in your work? Places where, or even places where, even within churches of color Sometimes those churches, even though they're safe spaces mm-hmm. for people of color, they're not necessarily dealing with the pressing issues. Right. And so what I'm wondering is have you dealt with people for whom church itself is a source of racial trauma and how have you helped them think through it or deal with that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, I definitely have. Um you know, I I want to really encourage people to really prioritize their relationship with God. And if for a time it means that they need to pull back and maybe sit in a the back pew of a church where, you know, they don't really know anybody, um, but it's just a, a way to, to just be present um, and to get quiet, then do that. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen people who've made choices that, um, because they're in a particular church, it's not moving as fast as they want on a certain level, then they're yes. like I'm out and and yes. i I understand that that's their decision. Um, there have been times in my own life where I've been in churches where I was like, okay, I'm done yes. <laughs> um, and yet i I really rely on God, I don't see everything. I don't know everything that you're doing and so. Is it time for me to leave? Do I need to leave? And so I've been in places where I felt, yes, I felt released to leave. And I have. If somehow the church environment is really mimicking like a really, you know, seriously dysfunctional or an abusive um, scenario, then yeah, yeah, it's time to go.
1: Why do you keep doing this? Why not just, you know, Say this is this is somebody else's problem.
0: You know what? I, I hold on to revelations and that, you know, that that imagery of every tongue, tribe, nation before the throne that um just really um the that the end goal is that. And in between that, I have seen God do some stuff. And so, you know, even churches where I've been like, okay, I I'm out and I felt like God saying, No, I want you to stay. And, you know, and then I see, you know, it took a number of years, you know, four or five years later, it's a totally different place. And, and so I, that, that keeps me going. That keeps me going that I don't know everything. I, I don't know everything that God is doing. Um, I need to keep tapping in, as, as I said, and, and find out what do I need?
1: As a professor, one of the things I tell my students all of the time is they have to come to grips with the resurrection. Yeah. And if the resurrection is true, then the world is a different place even when we don't emotionally experience it as such. Yeah. And it seems to me that you're doing like the in the, the work that Paul does. Paul tries to get his 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 congregations to think about a world in such a way that, that the disappointments in the world don't undo them emotionally.
0: Right. You know, I don't feel 60, but I'm 60 and the realities of what I've seen. And so it's easy to you know look at you know if you look at life as a story and to feel like in this very moment this is the end of the story like there is no good there is nothing happening And yet if we actually read from the beginning of the story, we would know that this is not just a couple of chapters it's a it's it's a longer story and within that there are good things that have happened. there are incredible, movements and shifts that have happened that we as as black people as people of color are where we are today and yet there is a lot that is not done and there's a lot that is not good
1: one of the difficulties about telling the story especially of black i, I can speak about black people because yeah. i know our i know our history yeah. better there's this one strand within the african-american community that says god hasn't done anything for black people know 2019 we still ain't free
0: yeah
1: but if you and, and and you don't want to like dismiss the weight of that critique. Yeah. And speak about the progress that black people still have to make in Absolutely. society in order to be free. Yeah. But I've actually read the primary sources. And when you go back and you look at African Americans discussions of the Civil the Civil War you see, in these black slave narratives, the claim—the unmitigated claim—God is the one who brought about this war Absolutely. to bring about our freedom. Absolutely. And when you look at Jim Crow and you yeah. look at um, the civil rights movement, like there is progress in society. Yeah. And the problem is, the moment that you mention progress, the progress is weaponized. Yeah, yeah. And it's weaponized yep. against yep. current black claims. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it's important for us to both say yes. Systematic racism still exists Absolutely. in North America. Yes, there are still the hindrances faced on Black people. Right. Yes, racism has changed forms. Yeah, but it, it 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 stands to me to be excessively cynical to say that nothing has happened with Black people over the last hundred years. Right. And it seems to me to be excessively cynical. Or I am I am allowed to do what my ancestors did, which is to see in the progress of Black people in this country the hand of God. Yeah. Because I'm assuming that Boston isn't the same place that it was in the 1970s. Right.
0: And you're absolutely correct. It's not. So there are places that I can now go and, you know, I, I won't get stoned or shot at because I am a Black person. Um and that would have happened earlier on. It certainly would have would have gotten beat up or, or whatever, back in back in the day. That's not going to happen now. However, there are still systems in place. There's there's still still a sense um, where black folk in Boston are still trying to figure out, like, okay, wh- where are what is our place in, here? You know, are we really welcomed here? How do we fight for our rights here?
1: So when you sat down to write your book Healing Racial Trauma: The Road to Resilience, you brought with it a lifetime of personal and practical yes experience. Yeah. What made now the right time to write this book yeah. given where you are in your life in ministry?
0: Yeah. Well, a lot of it came from, you know, arriving back in the States in 2016. Right in the middle of this election cycle, and just like saying, "Wow," <laughs> I mean, I, you know, and I think that you know, sometimes if you're if you're from the South and you're from, you know, maybe you're you're in a city, a state where there's a huge number of Black folk, um, you're kind of like, "Yeah, whatever. This is not any surprise to me." But I've experienced stuff in Boston. Most Northern people have to a certain extent, but people were at least. Uh, put on their best behavior, even though they could have thought all sorts of things. It just felt like there was like carte blanche. Just do what you want to do. Say what you want to say. Yes. You know, and that was, that was, that was an eye opener. It was like 10 years out of the country, come back. And it's just like, Whoa, wow. Um, You know, yes, this is, it had continued, but to see it like, so like trumpeted from, you know, the highest Places of power and even the church—it's just been shocking.
1: I watched it begin to develop. Yeah. I mean, I don't—I don't want to use excessively inflammatory language, but I call—I like to think about the—the the year before that, or the year leading up th- to that election. That summer yeah. was the—the the beginnings of the tremors of that earthquake. Yeah, because you had all of those um, encounters with police officers oh, who yeah. were all on oh, videotape, yeah. absolutely, and it felt like that in the, the the divided responses yes. to those incidents exactly. were a foreshadowing yeah. of what was about to happen yeah. in the country, yeah, and I used the language, and I don't use the language flippantly, and I know that I used the language of the red summer mm. um yeah. because of the the way that African Americans were treated coming back from yeah. world war II. they they were they're not on the same scope yeah. but the but the ways in which the red summer of i guess it's twenty fifteen twenty sixteen reminded or in a particular way signal what was coming in the culture. Yeah. I think that actually, I think that that summer is probably just as important as the election that followed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so that is what kind of, and and I think, and I think that's also led to the uncovering of the racial wounds that were unhealed in the church. You talked earlier about how if you don't traumatize people, traumatize people. Yeah. And I think that what happened is that there was a lot of unaddressed racial trauma yeah. that was papered over yeah. when all of the public causes for discussion hadn't happened yet. Yeah. And we got this perfect storm of when social media and technology kind of coalesced to everything is on tape and everything is discussed all of the time. Yeah, I think that it didn't create racial trauma. Yeah. But it unveiled unaddressed racial trauma. Absolutely. And, and and now the now I feel like and I really do believe this. I believe there's Christians of color who are bleeding all over the internet. Absolutely. Racial like the trauma is just yeah. like it's just an unending stream of it. Yeah. And so your book is written to help people who are dealing with kind of the uncovering of their trauma in this generation of the church's life.
0: Right, exactly. And I, you know, when I think about MLK and his, his the quote where he said that, you know, a riot is the voice of the unheard. And that that is the crux of the matter. There, there are people of color who are, are crying out, in, in, whether it's in the church or even in the world, that, you know, I mean, it's like, can you see? Can you look at this video? Do you, do you yeah. see what happened? And it's totally not seen. You know, I feel like you know, in terms of you mentioned like people of color needing to heal, and then you have the majority white church context, and what are what are they supposed to do? And so, my hope is on a number of fronts. One is that I feel like we've got to address even our inter amongst us as people of color. You know that we kind of oh yeah yeah so we we're kind of like. You know, it's strategic. I believe that we're pitted against each other, so we're all kind of jockeying, you know, for the crumbs. Um, and so that—that's one thing. Um, we've got to deal with our own personal trauma. We've got to deal with how we've traumatized each other, and we've kind of played into that game or that system. Um, and, you know, and then we've got to really look at like who are the the white um allies who really are not just allies but really are really coming alongside and you know are willing to take the the risk um you know there were those ones during the civil rights movements who, who got on the bus and went in the south and lost their lives like how far will you go um yeah. and you know and for those who are uh you know who are wondering like what can I do? I want to understand. Yeah. This book is absolutely going to help them to understand. This is what people are carrying. This is what they're dealing with. This is, these are some of the ways in which um, healing is going to happen. And what is your part, you know, as, as a white person in terms of, you know, taking it a step further beyond just washing someone's feet and saying, I'm sorry, there's more. And the more is, you know, how do you do repair? What does repair look like? What does repair look like on a micro level? What does it look like on a macro level? You know, in order for there to be relationship, there needs to be some repair. So we can go through forgiveness, and that's fine. But does that mean relationship? It, you know, this work. You know, we got saved, but this, you know, our we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You know, our we we engage in our relationship with God. It's not just a oh you you know. You're forgiven. And that's it. Yeah, God absolutely loves us. But we're on a journey.
1: People don't tell you, oh, I'm going to be racist at 930. So you should be prepared for this emotionally and spiritually. Racism by its very nature is unexpected. So, you never know as an African American when you're gonna immediately find yourself in a racial incident and you're running through like all kinds of calculus. It is intentional racism, it is unintentional racism, I'm being sensitive, or something racial happens in the culture. And then I have to come to work and live my life. I still gotta write my paper, give my lecture. I do not think, especially in our hyper cynical culture, that my white brothers and sisters always fully comprehend the pressure that African-Americans experience on a daily basis. They may or may not be the fifth person who's done something. So sometimes something happens and they say, well, where's the black person who I know? And I want to go and talk to them about it. And so maybe we don't want to talk that day. And then people come to us over and over and over and over and over again. It's one thing to see something... Online or read about it and be and be moved by it. You can a human being can be moved by compassion of anyone who's a sufferer. But what makes um, racial trauma unique is that it's not that you see something happening. You say, "I see that happening," and that is me. That has been me, and this is like the collective sense of tension. Because everybody's already on edge, and everybody's trauma has already been activated. And I even see it, and I am obviously black, but I see stuff and go, I'm not even sure I can speak to that person right now because of where they are, and they yell at me, and I'm a, you know, I'm with them. So there's a reason why I live in the Midwest and not in the South. And some of the things that I experienced as an African-American growing up in Alabama made me think I can't live here and be free. I'm not saying this is for everybody. I'm not saying black people need to leave Alabama. I'm saying I experienced a trauma that I escaped by leaving. What does it mean to heal? Because when you're trying to bring about justice and reconciliation you sometimes do it by not talking about statistics but by becoming intensely personal but the telling of those stories is itself sometimes a re-traumatization learning how to take care of my own emotional spiritual well-being while living and contending in a space that is always fraught is something i took away from the interview Thank you for listening to The Disruptors. We'll be grateful if you will subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me at Esau McCauley, and you can check out the best and most disruptive offerings from InterVarsity Press authors at IVPress.com. We out.